Well, good morning. Glad you could join in again as we uh, today are going to wrap up this uh, brief series we've done in discussing the question, is this the beginning of the end? And by way of recap, you've heard this many times, uh, tends to be the way I am. I like to reiterate some things to just kind of give some context to the current studies. But um, we have talked about how uh, we're actually not living in the beginning of the end. In fact, the beginning of the end, uh, as we would think of the last days, uh, would really have brought us back to Acts chapter 2, when Peter, uh, coming out of the upper room with uh, the rest of the disciples, uh, being uh, uh, the Holy Spirit having been poured out upon them, they come out and they begin to speak in tongues to this group of people who had gathered during the festival season there in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and as the people are looking at this uh, event take place, they're, they're watching the disciples uh, um, glorifying God in, in varying tongues, tongues that they didn't speak personally up until that moment as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. And they began to just glorify God in these various languages. Well, the people who had gathered from all over the, uh, the Jews who had gathered there from all over the known world uh, came from places where those languages were spoken. So they were hearing them, uh, <clears throat> the disciples, speak these things out in their own languages. And so they, uh, for some reason, they just began to think these guys were drunk, up there on the, you know, uh, I mean, burst out of the room and declaring God's greatness and, and all this kind of thing. They, they thought they were drunk or something. Peter says, we're not drunk, but in fact, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In Acts chapter 2, I'm always into easy ways to connect, um, uh, you know, passages to make sure that uh, we can remember where they are. Acts chapter 2, Joel chapter 2. That's, uh, he's quoting from Joel chapter 2. And, uh, and as he does, he introduces the fact that we are now in the last days. And this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was evidence of this, as foretold by the prophet Joel. In other words, as we've said other times along the way, that what God says something means what he says. You know, and, and we would do well to take seriously. I, I hesitate to use the word literally in some contexts, because clearly in some contexts, uh, God is speaking allegorically. The scriptures are painting a picture of something that is like something else in order to help us understand it. Other times, it speaks very clearly, very literally. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. There's no allegorical way to take that. That's a very literal kind of a statement. But when uh, when the, the scriptures talk about God uh, uh, hiding us under the shelter of his wings and such, well, we're not to take from that that God has wings like a bird, but we are to take from that the picture of like a mother bird watching over her, her young and that kind of a thing. And so we take the Bible seriously. In the particular case of Joel or other passages having to do with uh, last day's things, it's wise for us to take those things at first off at face value to find out what they might mean that way before we ever begin to try to allegorize them. That's a much safer way to go into interpreting the scriptures. And so uh, Peter, quoting from Joel quite literally, says this is the fulfillment of that. Well, if we've been in the last days from that point, then clearly we're not in the beginning of the end at the stage we're in right now. But the, close, uh, the question really is, how close are we to the end of the end, really? Well, we've talked about that. We've talked about a number of things that, uh, uh, that, that the scriptures told us would happen and route to getting toward the return of Christ, ultimately setting up his own kingdom. We've referred to Daniel a number of times uh, as he spoke about this. Uh, uh, we've, we've quoted Daniel a number of times, but one particular place is where Nebuchadnezzar has his dream of the succeeding kingdoms, ultimately culminating in a revived Roman Empire. This, these feet mixed with clay, the ten toes and such. Um, well, we see that um, um, that analogy used, uh, or that that picture used, 
elsewhere, the idea of ten nations gathering together and that kind of a thing. Well, <clears throat> ultimately, after that, the, uh, in the days of that kingdom, will come another kingdom, a stone cut without hands. In other words, we have nothing to do with the establishing of this kingdom like men have had to do with all the establishings of the previous ones. This one, God himself establishes, and this is seen in the return of Christ establishing his kingdom as we see it toward the end of the book of Revelation. Well, a number of things happened prior to that uh, coming to be. For one thing, Israel came back into the land in fulfillment of passages like uh, Isaiah 11:11, Hosea 3, verses 4 and 5, and elsewhere. Um, the fact that a temple is going to be rebuilt is still something that has yet to happen. We'll talk about now the last few things that are ultimately going to need to happen um, uh, as, we, as, we, uh, as we wrap our series. But I bring those things out to give some context to where we are right now and, uh, and, and to kind of dive into this last uh, study here on answering this question, is this the beginning of the end? I may have to periodically quiet a dog, so again, I apologize for that kind of thing. But um, okay, so uh, we've mentioned here about the idea of Israel coming back into the land and what happens now that they are. What's going to happen that precipitates some of the events that ultimately lead to the return of Christ? Well, uh, we have mentioned again along the way, and we expanded on this uh, much more in this, these last few points. We've expanded on these points much more in a previous series called The Sequence of End Times Events, and you can check that out on our YouTube page uh, or, uh, uh, you know, you can follow us on our Facebook page and such at calvarychapelfranklin.com or my personal blog at parsonspad.com. But we've talked about how there's going to be this scenario that unfolds called Ezekiel 38 and 39. Uh, this is not Armageddon. This is a separate thing from Armageddon uh, where all the nations of the earth gather against Israel uh, as, as described in, uh, uh, in the book of Revelation. Um, but this is a separate and prior event that takes place. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, a group of local nations led by Russia, I believe, Gog and Magog, it's uh, Russia and its leader, ultimately come down, uh, or its leader and Russia, Gog and Magog, they come down uh, ultimately to attack Israel and they bring a number of nations with them. And uh, that's Ezekiel 38 and 39. And it may be in connection with that, the, the, the kind of the lighting of the fuse of that powder keg may in fact be a prophecy given in Isaiah chapter 17. Uh, it, 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 this event may not precipitate that, but it's, 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 it's easy to see how it might. Uh, if, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 17 uh, and verse 1. Um, and again, we always encourage you to read the whole context. But the reason I point out this one verse is because of all the things that are spoken of that have already taken place, this event has not taken place yet, which is why we look to it yet future. Uh, and again, if we take the passage at face value, uh, then we're speaking of an, a literal event that's going to happen here. Notice in Isaiah 17, 1, where Isaiah speaks on behalf of the Lord, the burden against, or the oracle, the prophecy against Damascus. Okay, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. Okay, now you could find ways to allegorize that, but I mean, if words mean things, that's a pretty straightforward statement. Uh, not that it couldn't possibly be an allegory to something else, I suppose, but I, I, I would tend to take that for what it says. And that means that there's a day coming when Damascus will be destroyed. Well, if you watch the news today, you recognize that Damascus is kind of a focal point in the news because Iran, or Persia, as she's described in Ezekiel 38, uh, is set up with proxies around that city, having set up uh, ammunitions, depots, weapons, caches, and all this kind of a thing that are manned by Iranian-backed uh, 
uh, Hezbollah troops uh, or fighters or terrorists, if you will, uh, are also trained by Russian soldiers and, and some of these arms that are there are Russian arms. Uh, again, Gog and Magog involved in, in arming these nations like Persia and, and such in these last days. Well, uh, if you watch the news there, you see that oftentimes Lately, as of late, Israel has been striking that area, trying to very clearly, and they have said overtly, that they're not going to let Iran continue to have a foothold there, much less develop a deeper foothold. And so they continue to attack those, those munitions depots. I think it's uh, like a half a dozen or a dozen times in the last few uh, months, in the last couple of weeks, uh, I think four times or something to that effect. Um, but it's a, it's a constant point of contention there. And Israel is going to continue to strike there. Well, uh, if, if, if we take a broader look at how Damascus might be uh, ultimately destroyed in a conflict like that, it's not hard to put together uh, uh, the way that uh, many of Iran's proxies, groups like Hamas or Hezbollah, uh, or any of these terrorist groups out there, their tactics are not conventional. Uh, they're not above the idea of setting up camp in schools or hospitals or using human shields like children and that kind of a thing when they take on Israeli soldiers and that kind of a thing. I, I, I have a friend who has lived in Israel for many, many years who's, who's talked about terrorist activity that's taken out the lives of innocent civilians right there on Ben Yehuda Street in Israel. Uh, and so uh, it's, um, uh, it's, it's a terrible thing, but it's a true thing that we, we see happening from time to time. Well, I mean, if, if Israel has to take out a significant group inside of Damascus or around Damascus, it is possible that she may have to strike Damascus in a way that levels her, as Isaiah talks about. So um, I'm, I'm not saying I know exactly how that scenario will play out. I'm just throwing out a possibility, but I would watch Damascus and expect that something's going to take place there. And if Damascus is struck, then that's going to tick off Persia or Iran. It's going to tick off uh, Russia, because some of their soldiers and, and some of their arms in that are there, they have an investment in, in helping out Iran in that area. Uh, even though Putin and Netanyahu talk a little bit on the other side of the coin, there's also uh, clear tensions that exist. And so watch what happens there. And if it does happen, that could become the impetus that ultimately draws Russia into this conflict and brings with her all of these other nations that will be all too glad to go after Israel and see her destroyed, which is part of their mandate. Uh, and so watch those things. So Isaiah 17 and Damascus being struck. Uh, again, I've got a couple of stories about some of these strikes from various outlets like uh, the Times of Israel and such. I'll make sure those links are in the, in the, in the notes. Um, and again, Ezekiel 38 and 39 will unfold. This is prior to Armageddon. Uh, some people like to combine these two events. I think they're clearly separate. Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 is much more local than uh, Armageddon is, whereas, uh, uh, and, and even in Zechariah, where it says all the nations will ultimately come against Israel. Well, not just the nations around her, but all the nations. Uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, if uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, is not involved in that conflict. Well, if all the nations are involved in Armageddon, that means Saudi Arabia will be involved in it. Um, Tarshish and her young lions. If that speaks of Britain and the United States and other uh, offspring, if you will, of, of, uh, of uh, speaking of the young lions and that, they're not in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 scenario. Matter of fact, the nations that are in the Ezekiel 38 and 39 scenario are specifically named. And we see those names right there of their, uh, in their ancient form. And we understand based on where they are, who that refers to today. And as Ezekiel looks forward to this event taking place, we have an idea who the players are going to be. And because we specifically know that, we're not speaking of the whole world, whereas in Armageddon, it's a very different scenario. Um, 
the Lord says through Zechariah that, that Jerusalem will be a cup of trembling for all nations. Well, she is clearly that. And ultimately that will reach its uh, crescendo when the nations of the earth ultimately come against her uh, under the Antichrist, which is the next thing we want to watch for. Uh, I happen to think that Ezekiel 38 and 39 will be a local conflict in that area, that region, the Middle East. However, it'll be a significant enough conflict that it will probably draw the world into a place where they will be ready for somebody who can solve that problem. And hence, I think that brings in uh, Daniel's 70th week where the Antichrist signs a treaty with Israel. In the view of many, myself included, it will involve the idea of letting them rebuild their temple. Uh, if, if the passage in Revelation, which speaks about this outer court given to the Gentiles outside of the temple area is referring to this, then it may very well be that this new rebuilt temple will stand next to the Dome of the Rock, uh, the, uh, the mosque that uh, belongs there to, uh, to, uh, to the Muslims, and they'll stand side by side. And that will be quite a feat that the Antichrist likely will be responsible for. The world will, will, will fall in line with him because look what he did. He solved a problem that's been going on for millennia. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> as he establishes himself and the world gathers around him, he will rise up out of this 10-nation uh, uh, conglomeration and he will become its leader and ultimately the whole world will fall in behind him. And, and as I've mentioned in the past in that series, The Sequence of End Times Events, <clears throat> I think one of the draws uh, is not just going to be political, but it's going to be spiritual. We've talked about the false prophet in Revelation 13 and how he comes alongside the Antichrist and is empowered similarly and ultimately it leads the world into worship of this first beast, the Antichrist, who is empowered by Satan, the dragon. Well, um, because there's a religious element to it and because the Antichrist goes into the temple and declares himself to be God, we know that there is clearly a religious element to it. Uh, my sense is, is that the Antichrist is not just gathering the nations to be unified, but ultimately to be unified against the Lord. And when he returns, Armageddon will break out because they will come against God's people as led by Satan. And ultimately, uh, Jesus will come to their rescue and establish his kingdom. Uh, and so um, that is my view on how things will unfold. I think that's the way the scriptures bear them out. Uh, time will tell. You know, we always approach these things with a measure of humility because it is possible that there will be some variance to the way these things go. Uh, but that they will happen, I think, is clear. And as far as the scenarios as they unfold in what sequence, I think we've laid them out the way the, the Bible describes them, but time will tell. Now, there is one X factor here that I've not mentioned here today, but will mention or have mentioned often before and will no doubt often mention, uh, mention again. And that is the rapture of the church. This is an X factor. Um, there is a way to calculate the return of Christ after certain events take place when he comes to establish his kingdom. However, the rapture does not have any such prerequisites. There's, uh, there's nothing that needs to happen except the fullness of the Gentiles coming in for the rapture to take place. Now, the thing about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in uh, is that we don't know what that number is. We don't know when the fullness of the Gentiles as God has uh, decreed it is. There will be people that get saved during the tribulation, it would seem. So, and, and not all of them are going to be ethnic Jews. So Gentiles will get saved later too. So that means that there is just some number that God has in his mind that once that number is reached or whenever that last person that he knows by name that is going to be saved, uh, the rapture will take place which means it could happen at any time. We call that the imminent rapture, which means there's 
It could literally happen before this podcast is over, which would be wonderful. And if you're watching it after the rapture of the church, I hope that as you see this, you'll put together the idea that when the Bible speaks about Jesus coming to snatch away his bride, and then sometime later establishing his kingdom, uh, that you will understand your need to get right with him. And at the end of this podcast, like so many, we'll give you an invitation to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, again, if you're watching this during that period of time, after the rapture, uh, you could die at some point. You want to be right with God before you do. But if you have to endure the time that is soon to follow, uh, where everything that's described in the book of Revelation is God pours out his wrath on the earth, you will have to endure that, sadly. But the bad news is, you waited too long to ultimately come to Christ in order to be part of the rapture, but you didn't wait too long in terms of your eternity. So as you're watching this and you're seeing these things unfold and the church is gone, the believers, the body of Christ is gone, not every member that goes to church, by the way, but the body of Christ, those who are believers and born again believers in Jesus Christ. If you're watching this after we're gone, then hold on and know that the Lord is with you, but you're going to be enduring some hard times. But at the end, you'll see the return of Christ and you'll be part of his family. So when we talk about the rapture, we're looking for it at any moment, at any time. Uh, and imagine the impact on the world when the church is gone. I mean, if uh, imagine if it's right before Ezekiel 38 and 39, or if it's in connection with Ezekiel 38 and 39, or right after Ezekiel 38 and 39. An event like that will no doubt have a tremendous impact on the world's readiness and even eagerness to embrace somebody who can maybe explain what's going on or can somehow bring things together after many hundreds of millions or hopefully billions are gone in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul describes it. Um, it's, 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 it's easy to see how the world will be looking for somebody who can bring some sense of, of peace and normalcy and, and, and cohesion together for the remaining people of the world, of which there will be many, sadly, uh, who, uh, who, who will ultimately fall in line with him, take his mark, be part of his global society, will bow down and worship him, and ultimately uh, will have forfeited their eternity with God. Um, you, on the other hand, I hope that's not true for. Uh, and so that being said, as we look forward to the day when Jesus comes to snatch us away, as Paul talks about in writing to the Thessalonians, uh, he, he, will, uh, he will snatch us away and, and ultimately we'll be with him forever. And we're to encourage one another with these words. So be encouraged. Know that the time is coming. Uh, whatever you're going through right now, two things. First off, <clears throat> when he comes for you, all that stuff's done. Secondly, if you're a believer today, prior to the rapture, then you're not going to have to go through all the stuff that we read about in the book of Revelation. Uh, so those are two really good things to encourage, your, you can encourage each other with. Um, so share these things with other believers, those who maybe are not minded toward the uh, end times things. Don't, don't let it be a thing that is uh, uh, something to be avoided or scared by or sensationalized where it just seems silly. Simply share these things from the Bible. Point to the passages we've talked about. Uh, go through with your own, your own copy of the scriptures and go through and find these things and share them with your friends and your family. I know some of you do. You've let me know that, and that's so encouraging. But it's also a great thing for you to be able to do. And so take the time to, to pray for God to give opportunities to you to share about the fact that what's going on in the world around us is in fact unfolding and moving forward toward a time when Jesus will return. And that return is going to change everything. And you wanna be on the right side of that when it happens. As a matter of fact, you wanna be on the right side of it today so that you don't have to go through all that when it happens. 
And with that said, I'm going to go ahead and give an opportunity for any out there who don't know the Lord personally uh, to receive him. And, uh, and I want to pray right now for you, and I'll invite you to pray with me as we bring this, uh, this podcast and this series to a close and we move on to something else, uh, probably go back into the Gospel of Mark next time we're together. So, Father, we want to come before you and thank you for the plans and purposes that you have spelled out in your word. Father, we, um, you know, we may not know every single detail about how things are going to ultimately pan out, <clears throat> but we do know that you've said some very specific things that we can build on and can ultimately look toward with assurance that they're going to happen because you said they're going to. And so, Father, we thank you for being clear to us about so many of these things. And we pray that it wouldn't be the kind of thing that necessarily frightens us as much as it encourages us as believers to look forward to the time when we'll see you face to face. I just pray that nothing in this world uh, becomes so important to us that we don't want to let it go. Help us instead to be so heavenly minded that that every decision we make has, has, has some element of eternity in mind with it. Uh, the fact that this world we live in is temporal, but one day we'll be in that eternal place with you face to face, as it were, enjoying, worshiping, spending time exploring what eternity is all about. Um, <clears throat> and Father, we uh, just pray, Lord, for especially those who are believers right now to have that kind of a mindset. And Father, for those who don't know you that are watching right now, uh, I also similarly pray that, Father, that nothing in this world would be so important that they wouldn't be willing to let it go and instead put their entire weight on the finished work of Christ. That, Father, no sin in their lives, no thing that is so attractive to them to stay connected to now would be so important to trade in their eternity. Even as Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And so, Father, I pray that that lingering question would take on a, such an added weight in this moment as those who are watching who are not saved right now consider making that change and putting their trust instead of them on themselves and what they have or what they see around them, instead putting that trust on you. And we thank you, Jesus, that you came into the world, God in the flesh, walked among man, not only to teach, though you taught so profoundly, not only to do miracles, though the miracles you did staggered the imagination, but also and ultimately that you came into the world to go to the cross and pay for our sins once and for all, that we might be forgiven and that we might be free from the penalty that we so much deserve for our sin. And Father, for any here today who are ready to put their trust in Jesus and him alone for their salvation and to begin following him, to walk with him in the days that remain, whether it be to the rapture or ultimately to the end based on when they're watching this, I pray that you put it in their hearts right now, not to wait another moment. And if that's you and you're ready, then I invite you to pray with me now. There's nothing magical about this prayer, by the way. It's just my way of helping you do something that you may have never done before, and that's do business with God. To come and to just surrender, to put up the white flag, to lay down your arms, as it were, and to put your trust in Him, no longer to resist, but to receive. And so let, pray with me, if you would. Heavenly Father, I want to do just that. I want to stop resisting you. I want to admit to you and confess to you that I am a sinner. I am every bit... As, as, as much a sinner as, as your word says I am. I'm guilty, and I have no way to hide that. I have no way to deal with that. But Father, I believe that Jesus came and that he took my sins upon himself and paid for them at the cross once and for all, and that by putting my trust in him, I can be saved from what I've brought upon myself. Father, I know that my life may not always get easier, but I do know that my eternity is secure now that I've placed it in the hands of Jesus. Now help me to walk with him. I believe him and I believe in him, but now help me to walk with him. Change my life from the inside out. 
Make me a new creation in Christ, where the old things pass away and all things become new. I want to live what days I have left for you. And I thank you for being gracious to me and forgiving me. I thank you that Jesus took all my sins away and that he rose again on the third day. There is life eternal that I now look forward to, not with fear, but with anticipation. Father, I thank you for your grace toward me, your love for me, your mercy upon me, and I pray that you would help me to walk with you until I see you. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to close with a passage uh, here from Titus chapter 2. And this is a great one to underline, to highlight. Uh, matter of fact, if you just prayed that prayer and you don't have a Bible, you're not sure what to do next, please comment and reach out to me. You can either email me at brianbachochin at parsonspad.com or at uh, info at calvarychapelfranklin.com. These are on our websites at calvarychapelfranklin.com or my blog at, pers- at uh, parsonspad.com. Uh, make sure we get a Bible to you and help you understand what these first next steps are. And we'll try to get you connected with a church close to you that you can participate in, that you can grow in your faith in. Um, and so, so please do reach out. We want to help you in that way. And, um, and, and, and for all of us watching here, I just want to read this last passage as we bring this series to a close. And um, it won't be the last time we talk about prophecy, especially if things start to happen that are particularly significant biblically. We'll make sure we always point those things out. Um, but this series will come to a close, and I want to close it with this scripture. What, what do we do with these things? We know these things. How should we then live? What does this mean for us? I think Titus here really spells this out well for us, or Paul to Titus spells this out well. It starts in verse 11 of chapter 2, where Paul writes, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. And he goes on and encourages Titus then as a pastor in that area that he's in to go ahead and share these things and not let anyone stop him. I would encourage you to be the same way, to live zealous for those things that bless and honor the Lord as we look forward to his coming. And, uh, and we're excited about it. Hopefully we're excited about it. My hope is that as we teach through these things, we get excited about it and that we let this be the fuel that fires our faith as we walk here on this world until we see him face to face. So God bless you. Thanks for watching, and I uh, look forward to catching up with you next time. Again, my my intention is to go ahead and dive back into the Gospel of Mark, which we've begun. And uh, you can also watch these podcasts, again, on calvarychapelfranklin.com's YouTube page, and you can connect there from our website. You can also watch them on my personal website, parsonspad.com. And you can also listen now. I've got it connected now with various uh, podcast outlets, so you can listen on audio, whether it be on iTunes or Google Podcasts or Stitcher, uh, uh, any number of those outlets that you'd listen to, you can get the audio versions of these as well. And my hope is that they're encouraging and that they encourage us ultimately to do two things, to draw close to the Lord and to draw closer as students of his word. And so God bless you in that pursuit and we'll catch up with you next time.